Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network and uh, the New Books in History channel. I'm your host, Yorgos Yanakopoulos. And uh, today I have the pleasure, the great pleasure, to talk with uh, Laura Robson and Ari Dubnov, co-editors of a very interesting and timely volume on the 20th century history of partitions. So I will uh, first allow Ari and Laura to introduce themselves, uh, talk to us a bit about uh, their work, and, and then we'll discuss a bit about how this the project came into being. So, uh, Laura, do you get started? Uh, sure. Well, thank you so much for having us. We're really delighted to be here to talk about this new project. Um, and um, I'm Laura Robson. I'm a professor of modern Middle Eastern history at Portland State University in Portland, Oregon in the U.S. And I work primarily on um, the 20th century Arab world, and I'm especially interested in issues of uh, mass violence, of forced migration, ethnic cleansing, the kinds of um, brutal remakings of ethnic landscapes across the 20th century Middle East. And so those are some of the, the issues I've been thinking about. Yeah, so I'll jump in. Thank you again for, for hosting us. It's a great honor and pleasure. Um, so I'm Ari Dubnov. I'm um, uh, the Chair of Israel Studies at the George Washington University in uh, Washington, D.C. My my field of you know in research and interest uh, lie in uh, interwar, two Cold War, history of political thought in general, and with emphasis on uh, history of, of Jewish nationalism, Zionism, and especially its very interesting connections with uh, British uh, thought, British imperial thought. Uh, and this is, um, I'm connected both to my earlier work on, on uh, Isaiah Berlin and also led me indirectly to to, uh, uh, to this uh, volume. Uh, we will talk about it uh, later on, I'm sure. Well, great, great. Thank you. Uh, uh, so, yes, my first question will actually be this. I, I'd, I'd like you to uh, share with us a bit what led you to this project and a bit explain the rationale underpinning the volume and if you can briefly describe the kinds of, of different voices and contributions we have in the volume. Sure. Well, I think that I... I think we'd both probably trace the intellectual genealogy of this volume to a seminar that both Ari and I were involved in some years ago that was running at the the Library of Congress for for about 10 years on decolonization. And it was a broadly based um, conception of creating a kind of new field of decolonization studies and included people from all sorts of geographical areas um, and thinking about some of the themes of decolonization that emerge across the course of the 20th century. And so I think that that this is this is a project that at least partly comes out of that background, that partition is one of those themes that emerged for both of us from slightly different kind of intellectual and geographical perspectives. Um, and it seemed like something worth following up on and thinking more extensively about, um, particularly since it, it has been the topic of a number of kind of atomized national histories, but of it, it has really not been explored in this kind of broader transnational context before. And, and I will jump in and, and add to that transnational uh, context that this is 
um, um, both a justification to having a collection of authors collaborating in, in, a, in a volume. I mean, uh, uh, there's uh, something very ambitious about the project that, what, uh, that wishes to put side by side three uh, very um, um, distinct historical contexts, namely Ireland, uh, uh, Palestine, and, and the South uh, and South Asia, uh, the Indian subcontinent, and of course the literature written about each one of those uh, areas in general and the partitions in these areas is is immense. And and I don't want to even start to think about the linguistic skills a single uh, historian will have to uh, 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 to conquer at least uh, seven or eight uh, different uh, languages, and not to mention archives, in order to do such a thing. So it, uh, the transnational or international. Uh, um, dimension of this project uh, uh, justified this kind of a uh, to um, bringing together a host of historians uh, uh, that share an interest in in these partitions that are on the one hand uh, well versed in a specific context but are willing to think outside the box about the transnational uh, dimension and how the specific uh, a case or their specific region uh, was not uh, the developments that were not in complete isolation from other developments elsewhere at the time. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Indeed, uh, uh, um, any form of collective volume is also a, a conversation among scholars, uh, among shared themes. So uh, uh, that is certainly a very productive way of doing history. Uh, I just want to start discussing a bit about the, the, the project in greater detail. And I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll start with, uh, with, in fact, the subtitle. And it is, as you mentioned, Arian, Transnational History of 20th Century Territorial Separatism. So as you mentioned in the introduction, uh, we, the story of partitions can be seen from a longer-term perspective as well. So what I wanted to ask you is, what is it that makes it different in the 20th century? Mm-hmm. No, oh, thank you. That's an excellent question, and 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 this is where periodization and, and conceptual definitions meet. Uh, so um, um, we um, the underlying assumption and uh, of this volume is that uh, partition does uh, uh, offer us a, a uniquely new type of uh, political thinking and rearrangement of spaces and, and people. And, and that's, of course, um, um, requires us to define partition in a way that maybe uh, not everyone would agree. But for instance, I would, we were automatically will probably disappoint the expert on the partitions of the Polish Commonwealth, uh, though the term partition is, is uh, used to refer to that context, for instance. It's very different from the type of uh, things that we are interested in. Um, and I would like to say a, a few words maybe about what, you know, partition is not, meaning to define partition by, uh, uh, by elimination. Often partition is confused with other things, such as secession, that is, you know, the withdrawal of, of a group from a larger entity or association. Um, partition is often simply seen as, as a form of remapping, drawing new lines on, on, on maps, new borders. Um, Partition uh, sometimes involves transfer, uh, as sometimes it's called the unmixing of populations. Uh, it is an element of partition, but it's not the uh, uh, a synonymous. 
Um, and partition definitely takes uh, took place in a context of decolonization, but decolonization itself um, um, uh, is something different. And, and partition as, as a political idea has its root before the era of decolonization. Therefore, we must distinguish, if you'd like, original intentions uh, in the in the 1920s and 30s from outcomes post 1945. Um, so that's my my initial take. Uh, Laura, would you like to jump in and, and give now, after I give the negative <laughs> definition, a more positive one? Yeah. I, so I think that the way we understand partition is that there's a difference between earlier divisions of territory from above, right, where territories are kind of redefined, remapped in some way, which I would argue the Polish division um, falls into that category. And partition, which is the devolution of new kinds of political authority on specific populations who are being defined as national for the first time. So, and often with imperial kind of intention um, and ramifications for continued connections with imperial rule, as well as for operations on the ground. So I think that, you know, we're really seeing this as a new moment. And I think one of the historiographical interventions that the book makes is to say that one of the origin points of partition is actually the Greek-Turkish transfer of 1923, in which the League of Nations made the decision to support the mass removal and resettlement of populations who were being newly defined as national. And so there's this kind of moment during and after the First World War where this idea of demographic engineering um, intersects with imperial ambitions and also the rise of nationalisms around the globe. Um, and so partition emerges as a kind of new strategy for imperial continuation. Um, and it is really a new political phenomenon in the 20th century, we would argue. Right. Thanks. Well, uh, being Greek myself, I'm a bit of a, ashamed about the, <laughs> the comment that the negative as a well story of the Greek Turkey's uh, exchange of population. What it brought forward, but nonetheless, um, I actually uh, starting with, with what you said now, uh, Laura, about this. I, w- I wanted to ask, and Ari, we talked a bit about this. If we were to think of of uh, partitions, uh, you know, uh, to do with space and and uh, population transfers to do with movement across space, voluntary or involuntary. Right. Uh, so I, I'd, I'd like you to clarify a bit the relationship or the conceptual relationship, if you will, relation between population transfers as they have occurred in the 20th century and partitions before we move on. Right. I think a metaphor that I often use that, that I find useful, uh, hopefully my students sometimes find it useful, is to think about uh, a partition as it uh, emerged in, uh, from the 1920s onwards, a bit as a package deal. In the following sense, um, uh, it is a package that definitely uh, requires redrawing of maps and and creating uh, lines of division. Definitely, uh, but this to that component, we need to add that the lines uh, are now dividing not between religious groups, but by uh, but between groups that are seen by those who are designing these partitions as as national groups. So, to begin with, this is already. Uh, we are uh, entering an era 
in which um, um, if you'd like imperial architects already assume that they are uh, that the minorities that they are trying to govern uh, they're thinking about them in ethno-national terms which is uh, um, a very new type of, of, of way of thinking which separates it from earlier uh, cases secondly it's a post if you'd like Wilsonian moment mode of thinking in which there's an attempt to re-engineer the space in a in a way that will create a clear ethno-national majority. So in order to achieve that, you uh, start bringing in um, 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 voluntary or involuntary uh, um, removal of population if the the geography uh, will not correspond uh, very well with uh, with that uh, political space and 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 hence the transfer becomes of course another a clear and key component of that package deal and of course part of what is so difficult for or, or sounds so odd to our contemporary ears that in the interwar period um, um, that was not seen necessarily as an illiberal uh, as an illiberal excuse me. A mode of 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 engineering, and lastly, I think that the the, the package includes uh, a key term, which is state. Or um, the division is not simply because it's not simply redistricting; it's about creating uh, uh, separate states. Um, um, that so, uh, and we can talk about what is the meaning of these states. So, I think that this is uh, this combination of, or culmination of these several. Uh, 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 um, developments together is part of what un- makes partitions of uh, the 20th century unique and, and different. Great. It's interesting, you know, because it's, it happens at a moment when there these multinational empires have collapsed, right? And the ethnic nation state is emerging as the only viable political entity for the modern period. And so I think we can see partition and particularly the kind of forcible making of nation states where we have these clear national majorities as a way of bringing, as a way of appropriating ethnic nationalism to the imperial cause. Right. So ethnic nationalism is in many ways, of course, a threat to empire. But this partition offers and and demographic engineering more broadly of the sort that's happening all over um, colonized regions during this whole interwar period. It offers a way to make use of ethnic nationalisms and create successor states to the old empires that will in some ways benefit the ongoing imperial influence um, across Eastern Europe, in the Middle East, um, in South Asia, right? So this is this is a way of maintaining imperial influence in an era of ostensible independence and ethnic nation statehood. Great, great, thanks. Uh, it seems to me that your uh, book is also an intervention in, in in the rising scholarship and literature on on interwar internationalism and potentially interwar liberal internationalism. Mari. Uh, uh, mentioned this. So uh, do you mean to say with this book as well that we haven't focused enough, or scholars haven't focused enough on the dark side of this moment of some people call it the emergence of 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 an international society? I mean, I I think it's hard to find a light side to the emergence of this internationalist um, moment, in in all honesty. You know, this is an extremely destructive kind of set of operations that we see unfolding, you know, across, across the globe during this period. I think that in general, we have not 
sufficiently acknowledged the colonial and imperial basis of this new international order that emerges in the 1920s and 1930s. And this is one way where the the historiography on partition has really been insufficient because it has presented partition as emerging from national frameworks that were already extant, rather than understanding it as an aspect of decolonization and as an aspect of installing older forms of imperial privilege into this new internationalist system as a way of dealing with some of the challenges to empire that come up during and after the First World War. So I think it is a history of the dark side of internationalism. And in fact, it might suggest that internationalism internationalism in the interwar period is essentially a dark history. Right. And I would even add to that, that in, you know, using the metaphor of a dark side, um, um, it is also the story of the dark side of nation making uh, in the post-war era. So in a sense, we have here the perfect storm because both we tend to look at uh, interwar internationalism through this kind of prism of, uh, of you know, idealism versus realism and the uh, noble-minded uh, policymakers that were thinking about a better global order to prevent future wars, uh, but also part of uh, another you know, difficulty in the historiography and the challenge that we had to tackle had to do with the fact that, of course, you know, national histories that were written in the areas, uh, uh, in the new states that emerged out, out of partition, know that these uh, new states are, are products of, are consequences of partition, but they would often uh, steer away from talking about uh, the gruesome uh, uh, price. It would be seen often as the pangs of birth. You know, these are the pains uh, uh, that uh, creation of a nation state requires, and and these are a type of historiographies that are marked by, uh, by a very clear teleological assumption uh, reading the history as leading almost inevitably to that miraculous moment in which uh, this leader or the other declares national independence. Uh, and, and, and the other side of that independence is often the partition that is taking place uh, on the ground, uh, which is, would be seen as kind of a, uh, we, we don't want to talk about it too much. I mean, to to uh, take the conversation to more concrete uh, aspects, you uh, talk a lot about three case studies, uh, and and as you mentioned already, you have we have these two moments, as it were, the moment of 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 the interwar period and of of the postwar uh, period of uh, formal decolonization. So I wanted to ask you uh, if you can explain and expand a bit on the specific case studies that you're focusing on and um, and why uh, choosing this, these specific case studies? Well, I think it became clear to us when we were thinking about partition initially that all of the kind of paradigmatic cases, um, early cases of partition happened within the framework of the British Empire. And so that suggested to us that, in fact, there are networks and kind of channels of communication and even kind of exchanges of personnel among these spaces that suggest continuities among them and between them. So I think that this is where one of the ideas that we make use of in the volume is Edward Said's idea of a traveling theory, an idea that is born in one place and then through a series of kind of webs and networks is transmuted to another place and then, of course, transformed by its contact with local circumstances there. And partition is one of those ideas. And we these case studies are especially useful to consider together because it is possible to trace 
material connections, specific connections among the three of them, um, and to identify the way in which the idea of partition can be born in one space and then move through kind of identifiable pathways into another space and deployed there with potentially different outcomes. So it's kind of an intellectual history of the, the, the mobility of these kinds of ideas in this post-war era, um, as well as a, a history of its unfolding on the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, just for the benefit of listeners, before Ari uh, uh, speaks, I, I just wanted to mention that the, th- the three case studies in the volume are those of Ireland, uh, India, uh, and uh, 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 and Palestine. Sorry, in Palestine, of course. So, yes, Ari. I mean, uh, so I think that you know, if we take these uh, three examples, not uh, simply putting them side by side and and you know drawing a sort of a table of comparisons and differences, this is what sometimes political thinkers uh, and political scientists did. But but tracing exactly these type of of, of uh, lines connecting between these three cases, as as Laura just mentioned, you see a surprising uh, uh, story of of a the- as, uh, of a theory that is emerging, developing, and, and traveling in, in, in space. So the first, you know, stage, if you'd like, is the, of course, if you'd like, the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1921 that led a year later to the creation of the Irish Free State. This is, of course, the first case of partition. We have to remind our listeners that sometimes the term Irish Free State is a bit of a misnomer or, because uh, technically it was a dominion under the British crown until 1949. And uh, on, on the one hand, this was um, a case that was often seen um, separately from a story of partition, it was read only through the prism of British-Irish relationship and, of course, against the background of a long 19th century struggle for home rule. Uh, uh, but this was the first case in which we can see a redrawing of, of, of borders and a creation of two, uh, sta- two states uh, as, if you'd like, a mechanism of maintaining, containing those uh, national uh, um, uh, differences um, and it's a very interesting moment because it takes place uh, almost simultaneously uh, uh, with the uh, uh, Turkish-Greek uh, uh, um, 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 exchange uh, of 1923, and and it is uh, uh, which is endorsed, of course, by uh, the League of Nations. Uh, so, uh, though it takes place in a separate, in a different, distinctly different geographical setting. Uh, we have here the emergence of this kind of uh, package deal that uh, I mentioned. Fast forward to 1936-7, we see a very interesting case in which the idea is now taken uh, 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 out from uh, from the storage room uh, and and is put again forward in the context of uh, the Great Arab Revolt in in Palestine. And specifically in the context of the Royal Commission of Inquiry that the British are sending to Palestine to look into the reasons of, of that uh, rebellion. Um, and this, I, I would like to mention, of course, the, the very violent context in which these partition proposals are emerging uh, and, it's, uh, and the imperial context. Uh, the empire, these are moments in which the British Empire uh, realizes that Palestine might become a liability rather than an asset and they need to find a way uh, to think about it. And partition now emerges again 
uh, in the uh, proposal uh, put forward uh, by the Peel Royal Commission in 1937, um, um, uh, which uh, is discussed, debated for a long time, uh, pushed again, once again, to the uh, back burner just to be uh, put on the uh, on uh, in the front again uh, a decade later in 1947 at exactly the same time that partition becomes the major way of thinking about the end of the British Raj in India and the emergence of a two-state theory that that uh, uh, starts imagining a separate India and Pakistan. So these are uh, the three, if you like, cases and also in a way stages in the story. In, in these uh, cases and stages, there are continuities in terms of the uh, actors, be it British liberals, be it imperial bureaucrats that are involved in, in planning, thinking about and executing these uh, uh, or proposing these petitions, Laura? Yes, absolutely. We can trace some of the same personnel, the same colonial personnel who are moving from Ireland to Palestine. Um, it is notable, in fact, that the, the British military response to the revolt in Palestine from 1936 to 39 involved some of the same actors who have been brought in to put down the Irish rebellions of the earlier period. Um, and then, of course, we have some of the same the same people moving from Palestine to India and operating within the British colonial administration. But I think, too, that it goes beyond these kind of specifically British colonial and decolonizing networks of bureaucrats and officials, but also into this broader kind of internationalism where this traveling theory of ethnic separatism, which has been given, I would argue, new life by the successes of Zionism in the interwar period, has entered into the kind of international conversation about the making of a new global order. So I think it is a British story. It is a British imperial story, but it's it goes beyond that as well. It's also a story about the making of, you know, a new global order. What will this global order look like? What are the viable modes of political institution, institutionalization um, during this period. And the answers to those questions increasingly become an answer of ethnically purified or at least clear majority ethnic nation states. Um, so I think that, that it's it's a history that is simultaneously a history of empire, history of decolonization, history of nationalism, and history of international thought. If I would... I would we can add to that another dimension. This is, of course, that uh, we shouldn't be uh, tempted by, you know, falling into this assumption that uh, partition is only, if you'd like, sort of a copy-paste method of the imperial metropole, uh, only civil servants that are moving in, in space and are thinking, uh, whatever I use in case A is now applicable in case B. A part of what makes the dynamic fascinating and, and, and complicated is also what we may even sort of a call sort of an analogical uh, imagination that you can see among the local population. Uh, so in a way, the uh, national actors in these spaces are very busy reading foreign news. They, are, they understand that there are other developments in other parts of the empire that might be also relevant for them. So they're, when they are coming and, and developing their uh, political vocabulary and demands, uh, they are using examples and cases uh, 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 from other places or looking at other places as a cautionary tale. We mustn't fall into the same trap like 
the thing that happened elsewhere. So this is another kind of element or dimension of this transnational uh, um, uh, space. Yeah, just to give an example yeah. of that, you know, we can see that really clearly in interwar Zionist thinking, where people repeatedly, over and over again, um, bring up the question: this, the the model of the Greek Turkish exchange as a potential kind of model of success for ethnic transfer and the making of kind of ethnically purified nation states. So there are very kind of clear examples of the traveling theory idea on the level of national organizing, um, as well as imperial organizing. And I, and I think to add to this, uh, the uh, Greek-Turkish exchange and that model also to some extent influences discussion about the partitions in India later on in the yes. post-war period. Um, can I, uh, the, uh, Ari, you raised an excellent point and I just want to bring it up again uh, and ask about the volume as a whole. Uh, one can obviously tell that story, the story of partitions as a uh, top-down story, if you will, uh, but also as a, bottom, as a story from the bottom up. From, from the local context in which these uh, uh, um, events took place. So I just wanted to ask in terms of the uh, balance of the volume as a whole, which is an edited collection, um, uh, can one find both perspectives? And can you give uh, like one or two examples of, of how these two different perspectives correlate, come together? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, so our attempt was exactly to bring these two uh, uh, sides together. So, for instance, if you look at uh, um, um, Faisal Devji's uh, wonderful article about uh, the way in which uh, um, um, thinkers from the uh, um, um, from the British Raj started to think about themselves transitioning from minority to nation, this is a, a clear example in which uh, you have. Um, um, the local intellectual thinking in these uh, in these terms, not simply following uh, a top-down uh, uh, of order coming from the British metropole. Um, um, Kate O'Malley's a wonderful article, Indian Ulsterization, uh, shows you how uh, 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 people are constantly comparing. Um, uh, why is it so important from for uh, an Irish nationalist and an Indian nationalist to compare themselves and see themselves. Uh, and of course, I should remind us uh, that in a way, if you look at the colors of the two national flags, you have a uh, visual representation of the, uh, uh, the affinity between Irish nationalism and in, 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 in India. Um, um, you have these uh, um, um, uh, similar examples of also, uh, interestingly, when you look at chapters that we included that discuss people that were pushing back or rejecting uh, uh, partition or, or thinking about alternatives, whether this is um, um, Adi Gordon's uh, article about the binationalist Zionists that often came from Habsburg's uh, land, so they were had in mind a different political set of arrangements uh, and models uh, not uh, that that in their in their mind was a different uh, uh, an alternative to to the uh, partition and Joel Benin's um, article about the Arab liberal intellectuals uh, and the way they tried to navigate uh, in these murky waters both with with vis-a-vis the British uh, and the, uh, the Zionists and their own uh, own community and lastly I think that there's also an echo um, uh, later on uh, Priya Satya's beautifully uh, uh, really rendered uh, uh, 
chapter on the poets of partition shows you how even after the partition and after 1947 and with emphasis on the diasporas that are emerging uh, in the post-partition immigrations elsewhere, you can see this kind of a uh, uh, ambivalent longing and 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 pushing uh, and, and uh, look at the, at the origins of 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 that uh, um, of of the partition. So these are cases in which you uh, um, partition is is central, is key, and it's not part of the kind of a metropole or the official uh, British mind, quote unquote. Great, thank you. Uh, following from from uh, from what you just said, and potentially to Laura and you. Um, you mentioned in the introduction that obviously the meaning of, of partitions and the concept changed after the Second World War when we are in a different setting. Do you mind to uh, explain how uh, these two moments are different in what ways, the moment of the interwar period and then in the post-1945 uh, setting, and what kind of changes do we trace in, in, in the way even the concept is, is used? Yep. Well, sorry. <laughs> yep. Uh, the, clear, the clearest example, I, I mean, the clearest way of thinking about this, of course, is that the empire is essentially is formally over in in many respects um, in the post Second World War period. And so but the, the, the issue of partition and the idea of partition as a potential kind of, quote unquote, solution to the problem of pluralism in various spaces remains present. So we have to ask ourselves, you know, why this is, right? Why a, a solution that was really intended in the first instance to allow for continued imperial influence remains so prominent in this post-imperial era. And I think there are a couple of reasons. I think one is that it continues to offer the possibility of kind of recasting imperial ties um, in a national frame. So there are there is a continued appeal for the old imperial powers. But also it has been installed, at, just as it was installed into the thinking of internationalism in the interwar period, it has now been installed as a kind of tool of control on the ground for internationalists um, coming from new institutions like the United Nations. So I think it's really notable that even though, for instance, the principle of internet of, of forcible transfer has been kind of theoretically removed from the panoply of possible interventions at the international level, it continues to be used. We can see that in the, the transfers that take place between the Soviet Union and Europe um, in the aftermath of the Second World War. But also, you know, it continues to be operational as a kind of a, a frequently referenced possibility for situations of ethnic conflict right up through the 1990s. We can argue that that's exactly what happened, for instance, in the Dayton Accords, which basically formalized ethnic transfers that had taken place during the war. So I think that it's it's an interesting way of examining the kind of colonial and imperial origins of something that becomes a very deeply rooted principle of international intervention in the post-1945 period and continues to be proposed even now, particularly, you know, we see constantly, for instance, proposals of the repartition of the Middle East of places like Iraq and Syria, not to mention the ongoing conversation about the so-called two-state solution for Palestine-Israel. So I think it really does have this very, very substantial afterlife, um, and it's worth connecting that with its origin story. I, I think, Ari? yeah, I, I mean, Laura put it so elegantly, and 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 you cannot, of course, but but agree. I, I think that this is, in a way, 
if we move in a, in, in this kind of sharp transition from the um, interwar thinking about partition to the post-war, post-1945 uh, uh, thought of partition, it all sometimes seems almost as a story of unintended consequences in the following sense that, that um, um, I would argue that, that especially if we look at the currents of thought in British imperial or new imperial thought, post-1914 and 1918, um, partition emerged in that very unique uh, uh, um, um, stage or, uh, uh, or circumstances in which you had something that can be seen as an essential paradox. On the one hand, empire became a, a bit of a dirty word. You know, when Wilson comes to, to Paris and says the, or, the origins of that blood, awful bloodshed that we call the Great War had to do with imperial and colonial uh, competition. We cannot continue doing empire the old way we, uh, uh, we did it. On the other hand, especially if you look at the victors of uh, uh, um, uh, France and Britain, uh, the map is now, uh, the imperial map is now uh, bigger than ever before. So we, you uh, create partition as one of, uh, in a um, tool in, in a bigger arsenal of, of managing differences within the empire and as a mode of containing national differences while still keeping this imperial umbrella. It becomes... Once we understand this, post-1945 partition becomes uh, almost paradoxically the opposite because they become quick and uh, dirty exit strategies for the empires as they are collapsing. Uh, and this is uh, part of the uh, uh, very interesting dynamic that we have uh, in terms of the uh, political um, um, ideas and also the gap between political theory and its uh, actual execution uh, um, in the post-war uh, years, where uh, it now moves to a level, a, a new type of international realm. Uh, the League of Nations is no longer existing. We have the United Nations, as, and as Laura uh, uh, mentioned, in a way, uh, the United Nations takes uh, uh, this uh, idea and, 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 and uh, it becomes one of the tools that creates this unique phenomena that we have in the post-war years in which nation-state becomes the basic uh, standard unit uh, that uh, we inspire to uh, uh, remodel the entire uh, global map according to which. So in a, in a sense, to put it bluntly, if you want to have uh, uh, um, a membership cards and and join the group of, of nations, you have to declare yourself a nation-state. And, and this is where partition uh, becomes slightly different because it becomes now a mechanism of creating a nation state that is sovereign and separated, divorced completely from uh, from uh, uh, the empire. I think too. I mean, one of the interesting things that happens is that in the course of that process, the origin story and the genealogies of partition are actually erased, such that political operatives, in especially in more recent decades, have come to think of partition as a kind of neutral solution, right? As a kind of neutral operation that has no backstory, that is is simply a parceling out of territory and an acknowledgement of ethnic difference. And that's very dangerous, actually, right? Forgetting the imperial origins of an idea like partition and then redeploying it as some kind of essentially neutral tool of international diplomacy is a very dangerous thing to be doing. So I think that part of our goal in putting this volume together was to put these two 
calves back into a hole and remind people about the origins of partition as a concept and think about the ways in which those kinds of um, that that kind of imperial thinking continues to inform recommendations for partition today. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that's exactly the last point I wanted to raise with you and prod you a bit more on this. Uh, in fact, the opening line of the introduction, I think, uh, in the opening line, you mentioned that partition is having a moment currently. Um, and uh, Laura, you, 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 you mentioned or you hinted to uh, contemporary, alluded rather to contemporary events. Um, and may also add to that that also that, 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 that for certain ideas of what conflict resolution is or might be, partition has played a role. So, but, but to, 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 to uh, more broadly, um, if, you, if we were to look at the world today and, and, and see parts of the world where conflicts are ongoing and you know, uh, we have international organizations administering or managing forms of partition, what could we say that the relevance of, of your contribution is to these kinds of debates today in contemporary IER scholarship or, or in other kinds of fields? Well, I think that one thing that we want to point out is that partition was originally conceived not because it offered a kind of neutral solution to the problem of ethnic conflict, but because it offered forms of ongoing intervention in the guise of protecting and defending national identities. So I think that continues to be true. I think that advocacy for partition inevitably involves a kind of advocacy for external involvement on the ground, which is often violent. I think we need to remember that when we talk about the abstract concepts of partition, thinking historically, partition has invariably involved an extreme level of violence. Um, And that that's what happens when we physically and forcibly try to disentangle populations who necessarily live in mixed spaces, which is true for, you know, across the globe, across history. So I think that, you know, in a way, this is a kind of cautionary tale against seeing partition as a kind of neutral analytical solution to anything. And I would add to that, I think that perhaps it also acts as a kind of reminder that the ethnic nation state is a modern phenomenon, that it has been created primarily through the use of a great deal of violence on the ground, and that it's not, historically speaking, the only viable mode of political existence for a state, right? If we imagine ethnic homogeneity to be a requirement for the the political viability of a state today, we're going to be looking at an extremely violent future. Um, And and I think that, you you uh, really uh, hit the, the nail by the head. I mean, I think that in a way, when we read in the news today, we see partition in this way or the other suggested uh, in so many other contexts, uh, sometimes by name. We have uh, propositions to talk about the future of Syria, the future of Iraq, uh, but sometimes uh, it, it has a different name in the context of Israel-Palestine. When we're talking about the two-state solution, we are actually going back to partition ideas. So in a way, we are calling our readers to uh, avoid this kind of dangerous misreading of of history, and and there is certainly a bit of a pushback against uh, a, a tendency to see it as as uh, a natural and neutral conflict resolution uh, uh, tool. Right. Thank you. Uh, it's 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 about, in a sense, of uh, putting the history of petitions back into. Uh, understanding it as a practice and how it emerges in 20th century 
and uh, also make intellectual historians uh, uh, grapple seriously with such concepts. Um, I, I understand that thinking and writing about uh, uh, such uh, um, concepts and uh, might, might be a bit of a grim uh, uh, thing to do. Uh, but I, I just wanted to uh, end uh, this podcast by, uh, before thanking you, uh, to uh, ask you to uh, share with us potentially a, a future projects or where you find uh, uh, this set of questions to continue and which directions do you think uh, it might, you might be willing to, to, to continue this conversation? Sure. My next project that I'm just kind of wrapping up at the moment is a history of mass violence in the 20th century Middle East. And I think it does in a way extend from this project that one of the things I really want to do in this project and going forward and kind of set as a research agenda is to think about the ways in which these abstract formulations of political thought like refugee resettlement or the making of states or migration are actually inherently violent processes and to really examine what they look like on the ground as they're unfolding, not as they're being discussed in kind of, you know, international diplomatic halls, hundreds or thousands of miles away. So I think it's really crucial when we think about kind of abstract concepts like partition, but also, you know, all of its related phenomena uh, that, that occur in the making of nation states through the 20th century, to think about the violence that inheres in those processes. And that's what I'm hoping to do in this next project. And um, yeah, um, the book I'm, I'm, I'm currently you know, writing is, uh, uh, is also has uh, clear connections with this project. I, I'm trying to uh, read again in a new light and, and from new perspective, um, um, interwar political theory and especially the way in which Zionist political thinkers uh, were thinking about nation and state. And I, and I purposely say nation and state because the argument, one of the arguments of the of the book, is that nation state, as the hyphenated creature, was definitely not the uh, default mode of, of of thinking until the uh, late 1930s and and partitions. Uh, Zionists uh, at earlier stages saw themselves as a minority nationalism and sought uh, to find other types of. Uh, of uh, um, constellations or, or, or programs, autonomy or some sort of a dominion status under the British Empire. And I will bring these Zionist thinkers in, in conversations with the British imperial thinkers that were thinking about uh, how to rearrange the empire in interwar years under the uh, a bigger umbrella of what they called at the time Third Empire. Um, and therefore kind of a disturb with the conventional narratives in the history of Zionism that read it through a teleological prism as, uh, as a thought that is only based on the idea of the nation state from day, uh, uh, day one and to see the dynamic that, uh, uh, that is involved uh, and ending it not necessarily in 1948, meaning with the Israeli independence and, and the creation of a nascent state and, and partition, but actually in 1956 and the Suez crisis uh, that marks the really last moment in which you still have clear British attempts, uh, involvement in the region and attempt to create sort of a, a, a um, um, domination by proxy. Wonderful, wonderful. I'm sure everyone's looking forward to two excellent projects uh, on top of a very interesting volume uh, uh, which we have just discussed. Well, uh, I really wanted to thank you very much for, for Ari and Laura for, for making time and for discussing with us uh, 
today. Thank, Thank you, you so much for having us.